and welcome to The Urbanist, Monocle 24's programme all about the built environment and how to make our cities better places to live in. I'm your host, Andrew Tuck. Coming up... We give cities a sporting chance and assess how stadiums, parks and club rooms can all have a positive impact on our built environments. From an expert on the intersection between sports and city planning to a pickleball takeover in the United States that's helping to engage urban dwellers with how their public spaces are used, plus a look at sports clubs in Argentina and the way they support local communities. That's all coming up in the next 30 minutes of action right here on The Urbanist with me, Andrew Tuck. From basketball courts at local parks all the way up to colossal stadiums and major events, the way in which sport and recreation is woven into our cities is extensive. While the upkeep and development of a community green space gives us a chance to be good citizens, a new sports facility gives developers a chance to be good urbanists too. But what is clearly most important is that these spaces work with their communities too. So. What efforts are being made to ensure that a new court or field improves more than just the lives of athletes and fans? Tim Kellison is an Associate Professor of Sport Management at Georgia State University who specialises in the study of how sports organisations can act as community leaders and he joins me now down the line. Tim, thank you for being with us today. Let's start with you if we could. Perhaps first you could just tell us about the work that you do and what you're trying to discover. Here in Atlanta, we're flush with stadiums, both new and old. We've got two major metro universities a few miles apart, both of them with sizable college football stadiums. One of those is Georgia State's, where I am. And their college football team plays in the stadium that was originally built for the Centennial Olympic and Paralympic Games. And down the road from there is Mercedes-Benz Stadium, which hosts our NFL and MLS teams. And it's already hosted the Super Bowl and should be hosting some pretty big matches for the Men's World Cup in 2026. And then we have our major league team, the Braves, who they went in the opposite direction and they moved out of downtown for the suburbs a few years back. And so all of that is to say here in Atlanta, we have, for better or worse, a pretty robust natural laboratory to study the interaction between stadiums and urban spaces. And it's interesting you say for better or for worse, because I guess on paper initially you'd think that having an amazing sports facility would be only of benefit to any urban environment. But they come with many challenges. Perhaps, first of all, you could explain why some of these big stadia are such a kind of uh, an issue for sometimes for cities to absorb and make functional for more than the big match days or the big sporting events. One of the things that we have looked at is how have stadiums altered the way that cities function on match days and non-match days, and then also vice versa. Cities more broadly, but also honing in on the neighborhoods that are directly around there. And in the past, I'd say, I don't know that stadiums have really changed the way cities operate, although they've certainly been used in tandem historically with things like the U.S. highway system that has effectively cut off neighborhoods from the rest of the city. But just looking at changes to stadiums and their place, I think that's generally what has happened, that the geography and topography on on which a stadium is built 
it has been shaped by politics and demographics and commerce. And so in the U.S. here, you can really follow a moment in time between the, say, 1950s through the 70s, when all of our arenas and ballparks and stadiums, basically the teams packed their bags, they left those places, which were usually downtown for the neighborhoods and communities outside of the central city. And this largely followed the expansion of the highway system and the, the suburbanization of the American city. And you know, today we're, we're seeing the reverse. I mentioned the Braves as an exception to this, but most teams are returning to the central city to follow, follow the influx of new investment and residential growth in the urban core. In every case, these stadiums are larger, they're more versatile, and they're more expensive. And so those all pose opportunities, but also challenges for cities. In many cases, they're also more efficient and sustainably designed. So they're reducing their negative environmental impact, particularly in the neighborhoods that exist in, you know, in that stadium shadows. And, and all of this, despite all of this change to the placement and design and financing of stadiums, some of these neighborhoods around them have seen very little change. And maybe that's the ideal scenario. You know, not in every case, certainly, but some people just want to be left alone. So having these stadiums in the backyard can obviously have very strong effects environmentally and socially and economically, but they also might not do anything. And so it's a kind of a question of what you want in your neighborhood and how you want to be impacted. And tell me, is the bar for getting a project approved in US cities in particular, is that changing now? Because you say that lots of communities just want to be left alone. But it strikes me that when we've gone to see projects, uh, that many of the developers these days are saying, okay, if we're going to be here, then we need to start doing stuff for the community. We need to be offering sports services and activities to people, not just who want to be athletes, but to the wider community. Is that happening with big stadia in the US as well? Yeah, well, that development can be a double-edged sword for a lot of people because it's definitely a strategy today that building a stadium is in of itself is not going to be the driver of economic and social growth in a city. So we're seeing increasingly stadiums are package deals where they are part of a larger commercial district that would include restaurants and shops and also, you know, apartments. So when this development happens, it often happens to the detriment of these historic in the US, it's often predominantly black neighborhoods that have always been promised positive change, but Often what happens is that instead it leads to displacement and rising property taxes where they can no longer afford to rent or to live in neighborhoods where their families have lived for generations. So development is always a touchy subject because with that development often comes displacement and gentrification. And then tell me, if we come down the scale, we're talking here about you know big spaces, big arenas. But when we think about more community-based sports ideas, you know, swimming pools, for example, or or public sports facilities. Are you noticing change in direction again about how things are built and planned there? Yeah, I, I think so. I think in particular, those public sports facilities are showing us a preview, I think, that the sports venue of tomorrow is going to look a lot different than the one of today, in which they're more versatile, they could be easily adapted. And this, I think, will be especially important as density increases and our public spaces kind of get narrower and narrower. And swimming is a long-standing tradition in, in our public rec centers, but pickleball being another example that has just exploded here. And I've seen makeshift pickleball courts pop up all over Atlanta. I'm from a sport management academic discipline. And so at the same time, we as sport managers, we have to consider the problems of continued encroachment of development on 
green spaces, which have historically been used to supply uh, space for our traditional pastime sports here, being baseball and football and basketball. And so I think, especially in the urban core that already suffers from a lack of green space, it's going to take the hard work of community members and advocates to protect those public spaces of play. And so I, I hope that's kind of really what's ahead for us. I wonder whether actually, even when you describe swimming, the number of people who can get in, even in a big pool is not that many compared to a, a playing field that's subdivided into lots of football pitches, for example, or into five-a-side football pitches, or where there's more attempts to bring large numbers of people into a space. Yeah, so that's the tension that exists between stakeholders of our big-time sports here and just the simple, what resources can we provide to have the largest reach in a city and in, in neighborhoods? So I'm an ice hockey fan. I grew up playing ice hockey in Ohio a little bit. That is a sport that is completely inaccessible to most people. Baseball being another one that if you don't have the proper field dimensions, you're not going to really be able to prosper. And so looking far ahead from a sport perspective, the leadership of, for example, a National Hockey League and Major League Baseball are tracking very closely participation numbers of youth. And so if they are seeing that participation levels are lower, that fewer kids are getting into the sport, that's going to have ramifications, obviously, on the wellness and healthiness of generations, but it's also going to impact the sport's bottom line in a few decades because people who don't grow up playing a sport tend not to then follow the sport and support it as consumers in the future. So that's kind of one particular very business or industry-centered perspective. But you're absolutely right. I don't know that building an ice hockey rink in the middle of a kind of a downtown neighborhood is really going to gain a lot of popularity. But, you know, it could melt in the summer and then you have a nice, really shallow swimming pool. So that's the versatility I'm talking about. Many of the sports facilities that get built in a US context are either backed by philanthropists or they're backed by private money. When that happens, because in a European context, often when these, these things get anywhere near to being planned, the, the city authorities will say, OK, not only do we want to know how it fits into the urban environment and what the, the community game will be, but we want to know that there are going to be some outcomes and you're going to track these outcomes. You know, is the longevity of uh, poorer communities going to improve? Is the, the life chances of young kids who are obese at the moment going to be turned around? But when it's big business deciding you know, that this is going to be the, you know, the, the ultimate arena in, in the state, is that difficult to bake in those hopefully important ideas to a project as well? Is that something you're seeing? Yes. So our stadiums do tend to have a fair amount of private investment, but they also are typically public-private partnerships where there is a still a substantial amount of public money being put into the stadium. And in many cases, the ownership structure of those stadiums are that they are publicly owned, that there are some public entity, a governmental entity that technically owns the stadium. In most of those cases, though, much of the revenues and the operations are still conducted privately, that there is a private ownership group, usually the primary tenant of a sports team that manages and operates and collects a lot of the revenue of the stadium. And so even when the public does have a, a high level of investment in the stadium, it's really still the private side that is making most of the decisions. And so for that reason, you see kind of wildly different approaches to integration into the urban fabric and environmental sustainable design of stadiums. You know, some new stadiums are very, very kind of environmentally sound. They are good indicators of this movement toward more sustainably designed venues. And others are very much less so. 
one of the things that you brought up previously was you know the accessibility of stadiums to the public around there and to be fair i don't know that american stadiums are doing a much better job there you know it's really really costly to watch a live major league match here in the states and these are generally buildings that they're closed off from the general public even when locals footed a big part of the construction bill for their taxes and so I think there are exceptions to this, and there's some recent examples that might shed some light on the potential stadiums have to be better integrated into the urban fabric. U.S. venues in the past have served as high-profile storm shelters and evacuation centers, and in the past few years, like they have kind of all around the world, American stadiums were transformed into field hospitals and COVID testing and mass vaccination sites, and even in the past, in the last couple of years, municipal voting centers. And these cases demonstrate that stadiums can be used in a, a truly public serving capacity. And it's in those examples that we can establish sports stadiums as a public good, that they're centers of civic pride and community identity, and they can contribute to a city's positive image. It's kind of in that approach that I think you can start to see stadiums as being more inclusive, particularly in times of extreme needs. So not that we need a extreme weather or a pandemic to demonstrate that, but it has at least shown some light on the potential of stadiums to serve the public in a way that they don't really right now. My thanks to Tim Callison there. We just heard Tim mention the rather strangely named pickleball, a racket sport that was first invented in the 1960s, but which has been positively exploding in popularity across the country in the past few years. The surging interest, though, has put American mayors in a bit of a pickle, pun intended, when attempting to find resources and court space to meet the demand. And it's even forced some mayors into mediation roles, breaking up fights for space between pickleballers and tennis players. Gavin Buckley, the mayor of Annapolis in Maryland, and a regular pickleball player himself, showed Monocle's very own tennis fiend, Chris Chermack, how it's done. I met Annapolis Mayor Gavin Buckley just after 9am at Truxton Park. Mayor Buckley is clearly a regular. Now before you ask, yes, he is the Australian. Mayor Buckley moved to the United States back in 2007 and he has not looked back. He signs up for a game on a board that sits just outside the six pickleball courts. And then you can come down any day and there's always a game to jump into, you know? Mayor Buckley is wearing a Roger Federer sweater and I've got my University of York Tennis Club sweater as we partner for the first round. I pick it up relatively quickly given I'm someone who's played various racket sports all my life. But struggle with some of the rules. We lose our first game 11-2. But the group is encouraging. It's not going to take you long. Oh, yeah, you're I smile politely, but I'm also looking a little forlornly at the park's tennis courts. The pickleball courts here at Truxton Park are bounding with activity. The tennis courts, they're completely quiet. By the time I leave, there's probably around 30 pickleball players. One player is a local fireman. Have you set some courts up at the firehouses? Oh, yeah. That's awesome, right? I love it, man. Oh. And what, what, what firehouse are you at? I'm in uh, Howard County. Okay, cool. That's but, awesome. like, all, the, all the fire stations out there, yeah. they all have pickleball yeah. courts. I've got to check, check in with the chief on that, you know? That's a great idea, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Now, as you can probably tell, Mayor Buckley has become enchanted by the sport. 
As he explains when we meet separately at a nearby indoor mixed-use recreation center called Pip Moyer. So probably a few years now, three years maybe, um, I started to wonder who these crazy people were down here playing at Pip Moyer and what that sport was. And then one of the organizers asked me to come and play and said, you know, I'll give you a paddle and you can come and just have some fun. It doesn't take long before you're addicted. You know. Over the past few years, pickleball has become the fastest rising sport in the United States. Some 36 million Americans have played pickleball according to recent estimates. But really it's the grassroots nature of it that has brought it to the attention of city mayors. You can go to a council meeting and when there uh, needs to be advocacy for the sport, uh, you know, a hundred pickleballers uh, will roll up with their paddles. And then there's the pickleball tennis wars, of course, you know, where pickleball seems to be dominating currently. The fact is the rise of pickleball has created no small amount of tension and competition for finite resources with other sports in cities, particularly tennis, since pickleballers tend to set up their own nets and lines on the same outdoor courts. Mayor Buckley has seen firsthand how passionate fans of the two sports can turn a little ugly if left unchecked. I did have to organize what I call the Camp Truxton Peace Accord between tennis and pickleball and we did have a police officer on standby because it got a little bit heated at the rec center where we were just at. What were the accords? <laughs> Tell me the accords. <laughs> we were just trying to establish how we would share. So. There's only lit courts in the middle here. That meant at night time they had to be shared. Now at this point you're probably shaking your head a little at the idea that something like pickleball and tennis should cause so much of a ruckus. But I can tell you that Mayor Buckley is hardly the only one. Earlier this year he joined a panel dedicated to pickleball at the winter meetings of the U.S. Conference of Mayors in Washington, D.C. I mean it is a bit of a first world problem. We deal with homelessness and policing and, you know, serious issues. So it was kind of funny to be on a pickleball panel because it, it actually is becoming serious issues in different communities all over the country. You read about them all the time. Um, I'm sure there have been blows, there have been mayors that have got in trouble. You as a mayor, you have to recognize that you have to get in there before something escalates. Yeah, you have to try to be ahead of these things and that's why we did the get everyone around the table at the peace accord. Only I called it that. It wasn't really called that. <laughs> Jokes aside, city residents can get pretty passionate about sports. And while that obviously presents opportunities, it's become a genuine challenge for mayors around the country. Probably five years ago, I'd never heard of pickleball. I made it a little longer than that, but um, people are enthusiastic about it, that's for sure. This is Buddy Dyer, mayor of Orlando in Florida. Dyer had the rather bizarre distinction at the mayor's conference of joining a panel about mass shootings and one on pickleball. If that doesn't show you the breadth of issues mayors have to deal with, I'm not sure what will. And I'd rather be the mayor that's known for pickleball than the mayor that's known for mass tragedy, right? But we are creating more pickleball courts in Orlando, and you're exactly right. There's a real need for them. People like to play pickleball. It's a, quite honestly, it's the older crowd, maybe not as athletic anymore. They're not going to run around and play three sets of tennis, although I think you have a lot of knee injuries and twisted ankles. So what are you doing then? Are you building courts all around the city? How do you go about that? We opened a pickleball complex at one of our neighborhood centers and we're looking at additional places that we can um, install pickleball. 
Aside from finding money and land for facilities, the other challenge for mayors is the noise. Pickleball is particularly loud given the types of paddles used and the quick-fire nature of the game. That means the placement of courts ideally needs to be away from homes. But the sport itself is working on some improvements here too. In fact, this quarter, we're launching an incentive to manufacturers to design and, and bring to market paddles that have a, a slightly lower frequency and uh, uh, ideally a lower decibel or sound pressure. This is Carl Schmitz, Managing Director for Equipment Standards and Facilities Development at the USA Pickleball Association. Schmidt says he often works with cities on the placement and design of courts to mitigate the noise problem. We come in, we provide solutions for noise mitigation, whether it's a type of uh, design you know, for the courts, orientation, fencing uh, materials that can be put up that will actually dampen either by reflection or by absorption the acoustic propagation. Schmidt says pickleball also tries its best to be mindful of other sports. As the new kid on the block, they usually target facilities that are not being used much by local residents. And they're also looking into partnerships with tennis itself. The hope is that these smaller pickleball courts could be used to teach tennis to youngsters, for example. In other words, there is no reason tennis and pickleball can't get along. Back in Annapolis, Mayor Gavin Buckley says the Truxton Camp Peace Accords are holding, but not without a bit of one-upsmanship from the tennis players. Some of the tennis people put their signs on the trees around here to let everyone know that they planted these trees. Just to show you the territorial nature of what happened here, dedicated this bench, who dedicated that bench. Faye Weatherford, his passion for tennis was boundless. Yes. <laughs> so that was rededicated, as far as you know, as yeah, part of this sort of quiet new, war. A new, a new sign, yeah, went up. Yeah. At the end of the day, Mayor Buckley hopes the early growing pains will go away with time and that pickleball will slowly become an accepted part of the city's sports landscape. The pickleball people just, in my view, just want to be accepted. <laughs> That's the way it looks to me. For Monocle, in Annapolis, I'm Chris Chermack. Lastly today, we head to Argentina to see how the city sports clubs are doing more than just providing a space to cheer on the local team. Monocle's Lucinda Elliott went along to a few sports spots in Buenos Aires to find out more about the community support and social enrichment going on inside these neighbourhood club rooms. It's approaching midnight, and a queue has formed outside a traditional sports club in the centre of Buenos Aires. Fashionable youngsters on a night out are making a point of waiting for a table at the canteen of Club Eros. By day, the indoor football court adjacent is filled with youth teams and coaches cheering them on. These members clubs, that offer a range of different activities from billiards and chess to the beautiful game and basketball, are absolutely thriving, particularly at mealtimes across inner-city neighbourhoods. It's in part because of the homely and affordable menus that are available to passers-by at both lunch and dinner. I began in the Eros Club kitchen, speaking to head chef Oscar Juarez. He was preparing breaded beef cuts, or milanesas, in a large frying pan as I walked in. This club has a beautiful story. It was always privately owned and never received any external funding from politicians or help from the business sector. It was driven by its members. It isn't particularly big, 
so we can manage independently from the membership fees and by renting out the pitch to other people in the area. It is a club, but anyone can come in, take a seat, watch some sport and eat well. Surrounded by fast food, vegan and resto options in the district of Palermo, the buffet-style menu at Eros is hearty, with dishes served at simple wooden tables. Trophies and football strips line the shelves above. Looking down at the price list, I almost can't quite believe the size of the portions you get for your pesos. Annual inflation in Argentina is running at just under 100%. Oscar tried to explain how he manages to keep prices accessible. I wake up at 7am and buy everything for the day. I keep my same providers, the same ones who have sold me the eggs and the meat for 32 years. What's important is that we offer good quality meals to our customers. I look after my clients who give me life and that's what ultimately gives me pleasure and makes it all worth it. Those who no longer live in the area also come down to eat here. That's a big part of it. We have more or less 40 to 50 covers at lunch and 100 each night. It's the same kind of food that your mother or grandmother prepared. And that's why I'm confident about this business, as long as I'm around to do the cooking. And the club is certainly popular. Despite experiencing strict lockdowns throughout the pandemic and challenges like rising rental prices, Oscar, who keeps the kitchen open every day of the week, said the flow of customers has been constant. This club is in Palermo, one of the most sought-after areas of the city, and of course it has its costs, but we can cover them. The pandemic was very hard, we have an extremely loyal clientele that responded immediately on reopening though. And we fight. Me and my son, together, we work hard and we feel we've overcome a very difficult period. Sabine Kastner is an urban planner from Germany who works in Buenos Aires and has been looking into the history of these social sports clubs. It's mainly based on the concepts and roots of European immigration to the South American continent by the end of the 18th and beginning of the 19th century. On the one hand, it was through English settlers who had a great impact on Argentinians' industry and infrastructure back then. And so the upper classes of the time held a big admiration for England and their founding of sports and workers' clubs, which were very popular in England back then. And so you can kind of say that they were the initiators of a sort of club movement in Argentina. And then on the other hand, there was a both national and international immigration, mainly from Southern European countries at the beginning of the First World War and industrial change and industrial revolution. And so that caused the capital of Buenos Aires to grow very rapidly. And within a, a short period of time, Buenos Aires became a very lively, diverse place where different social groups with different origins, economic conditions, social positions and ideas of leisure settled and sort of strengthened their ties to a new place by gathering in their cultural bubble and in their circles and by bringing their customs and ways of lives and values to a territory that was foreign to them. And so I guess kind of naturally they started to create these cultural and spatial hybrids that you can see in the spatialization of the social and sport clubs today. My grandparents actually met at one of these such English clubs in Buenos Aires back in the late 1940s, going to dances and watching sport. It ultimately led to a 60-year marriage and lifelong friends. Jump forward a few decades and Sabine gave her view on why they've survived. They are around... 
20,000 clubs in total in the entire country, of which around 250 of them are located in the small-scale neighborhoods of the capital. So they really are an integral part of the Argentinian social life. I mean, that number is very unique around the world, and just by its quantity, they are very present in the city. And so every one of these clubs is very closely linked to their neighborhood and creates a feeling of belonging for its citizens and users, you know, kind of as spaces and infrastructures of care, exchange and togetherness. And they have therefore a very multi-layered structure of social, civic and cultural functions and tasks, which ties the institutions to the society on many levels. So by implementing themselves within the neighborhood, the clubs are constantly interacting within other facilities across the cities through sports tournaments and cultural events and one of these elements which is also very beautiful are the inexpensive canteens or, or restaurants that most of the clubs have and they kind of form the interface not only between the club members and the general urban society but also between the culinary traditions of Argentina and then the club's country of origin one of the reasons why they've been so resilient in the past years within the many economic crises the country has been having is that they are being quite independent from politics. There was, for example, a situation within the recent years where during the neoliberal government of the past president Mauricio Macri, the majority of the clubs, they were kind of pushed into debt through tariff increases and they kind of aim to transform the institutions and profit-making enterprises through an increasing economization of sports. So a more direct connection to politics in a country like Argentina is sometimes not really positive in that sense. Closer towards downtown is one of the first billiard clubs in Argentina, on Avenida de Mayo. It opened in 1894, the same year the avenue was built. Over a coffee, local architect Juan Campanini talked about the layout of 36 billiards and what it means for porteños, the Buenos Aires locals. It looks like a regular coffee shop of Buenos Aires, but when you go downstairs, it's a underground full of these tables. So it's a very special place, That it's a very social place. Especially now we are here on Monday and afternoon. But if you come here on Friday or Saturday, it's full of people, full of sound. And it's very interesting how it's like an underground world in the middle of the center of Buenos Aires. The roots of this kind of space uh, come from the beginning of the century when the city was full of immigrants, but at the same time people that were living here from uh, several years. So all these different kind of people met in these uh, places. In a way, it still has that spirit or that atmosphere of a place where all come together. So it's a really nice space because maybe it's not, you don't see natural light or the sky, but it, it works in a nice way, so it's a nice place at the end. It's in the middle of Avenida de Mayo, uh, four or three uh, blocks away from the Congreso, so it's like the, the center of the city. But yes, it's interesting that this is very particular because it's very like specific about a billiard, but it's not an exception. There are plenty of these spaces in the city in different places. Reinventing a social mecca, regardless of religion or age, and united by a decent meal, cup of coffee, and playing a game. It feels like Buenos Aires has a good thing going, keeping this tradition alive. 
My thanks there to Lucinda Elliott, reporting from Buenos Aires. Well, that's all for this week's episode of The Urbanist. For more from the world of urbanism, make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you get new episodes every week. And why not subscribe to Monocle magazine too? And you can do that at monocle.com. Today's show was produced by Carlotta Ribello and David Stevens, And David also edited the show. And to play you out this week, here's the Decemberist with The Sporting Life. Thank you for listening, City Lovers. Take the